So a reading from Revelation chapter 5, uh, from verse 11. So the Apostle John is writing, and he says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Thanks, Matthew. Um, that was really well read um, and it captures the, the urgency of that passage. What is it about? Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Frank. Um, I think I've, most faces in this crowd seem somewhat familiar. 
Um, but yeah, I'm Frank, I'm, I'm on staff here at Aldenga and um, I coordinate and facilitate the music and media. I get the pleasure of bringing Revelation to us. And um, John led really well this morning and he, he was talking about uh, pain and he was talking about a battle and I was thinking about pain this morning, um, this morning and this week because when we're in pain, pain tends to take us over. It's a fog that clouds our thinking we can't see our way out. I say this because last Saturday I was with my dad um, chopping up and splitting a tree that had fallen on the house a couple of weeks ago when it was really windy up in the hills. It was a big gum tree. Turns out that there is actually a lot of wood in a tree. Who would have thought? Um, and because he's getting on and because I'm a good son, I was doing a lot of the lifting and the cutting and the stacking. He was just kind of pressing the switch on the hydraulic log press. Um, anyway, so, and then uh, combine that with moving a lot of gear on last Sunday morning, I twinned something in my shoulder, um, and all week I've had this slight pain in my shoulder. When I take the dog for a run, instead of appreciating these brighter, little bit warmer mornings, I just feel Yoko pulling on the leash, and I just feel this, ow, 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 in my shoulder as she pulls ahead of me. This goodness that I'm used to of getting out into the fresh air, getting exercise, it's overtaken by a painful fog. Now, it's, it's not too sore anymore, um, but we all live with our own aches and pains, don't we? We can all attest to parts of our life that are clouded by the fog of pain. I want you to imagine a world in pain. I've done something to my shoulder. You might get headaches. But for Adelaide this year, in May alone, police recorded 900 family and domestic-related offences. In May, that's 30 a day. It's a painfully evil number. Because this world is subject to evil. And when we, when we see it, we experience it like a painful fog, like something that's refusing to be broken up, no clear way out, just like the owl of my shoulder, except on a cosmic scale. Just like my shoulder, when we experience the evil of this world, it's hard to see, it's hard to appreciate and make sense of the goodness of this world and the way that, the way that we believe that God is bringing this world to its good end, bringing everything to fulfillment. Which I like to just acknowledge here and now, I think that's why we're here, right? That's why we've gathered here this morning. We've come to encounter the living word of God because he is good and true life despite the pain of evil in this world. And we sing songs that have lines like from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny because we're here, all of us, to experience the way that Jesus brings our world with all its confusion, all of its chaos. He brings our world to its fullness from the lives of our great-grandparents to the lives of the generations to come. Which might make sense, but what does that have to say about the passage that was read? It seems like not much is being brought to completion here. This passage in Revelation, when you read it first, might make little to no sense. A book that's supposed to be an uncovering, a revealing of who Jesus is and what he's doing, but instead it's filled with death, with suffering and with evil. 
if Revelation is the final word, God's final word on things, why is there so much evil in the book of Revelation? That doesn't break through the fog. That just looks exactly like things have been. I think it's important to remember that Revelation reveals. Okay, if it reveals the way that Jesus fulfills our first cry and our final breath, um, it has to fulfill the tough stuff too. It has to fulfill the pain, the evil, the ways that these things cloud this world's meaning. Jesus brings all of this to an end, to its proper end. So this morning, it's my hope that if you are travelling through pain and evil, then the fog might lift. We're going to encounter God's living word together, who is Jesus, who brings this world's pain and evil to its right end. So, why do we see these four writers? Why do we see evil, pain, and suffering so clearly in this chapter? And why is it a problem? Well, I, actually, I don't know if you remember, um, and I don't expect you to, but we've explored in chapters 4 and 5 the vision that John is having that God is all-powerful and that he has a purpose for the world, which for us is unknowable until we see Jesus, who is the lamb who is slain. He takes God's purpose, which we see is the, the scroll, which is sealed with seven seals, and he is worthy to open it. He's worthy to make it known, God's worthy to make God's purpose known to us. And Jesus opening the seals on the scroll is what brings the writers forward. The lamb opening the seals on the scroll. And every time the first four seals are opened, and we get closer to actually understanding what is in the scroll, a rider is called forth by one of these four creatures that are around the throne of God. Um, you'll see in verse 2, there's the white horse and its rider. The white horse clothed in white with a bow, given a crown, coming out conquering, kind of like this lamb who was slain in the previous chapter. Except instead of the humble image of a lamb, we have this warring, this domineering image of a warrior on their war horse. And lots of commentators say that this this is a false Christ. This is someone who tries to achieve God's power, God's plan, sorry, by means of this world's power. You could, you could use a word like triumphalist uh, to describe this writer, which um, means that they might say things like, the best is yet to come. Or that God has commissioned us directly to fight and to win these culture wars. It's, it's a false religion. We're going to go through these pretty quick. Another horse and its rider are called forth in verse 3. A bright red horse. He's given a large sword and permitted to take peace from the earth. earth. Uh, he's a horse of war and of bloodshed. Yeah, I think we've all experienced the fact that you don't have to spill blood to take peace. For us, this evil is not restricted to the battlefield. It is all around us. To take peace is to wage war. Don't, don't we know that by what is said or what is left unsaid, even by just a look, we can be at war with others? The next rider 
called in verse 5 after the third seal is broken is a black horse with scales in his hand. And to explain these scales, if we read on, we hear a voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And you're thinking, what does that mean? Um, A lot of commentators that I've read explain it very similarly to uh, what we're experiencing right now. A denarius, uh, Jesus uses, this is, this is the amount of money, this is a coin, Jesus uses a lot of his stories, and it's about equal to a day's wage. And a court happens to be about the measurement that you would need to live for one day. If you had a quart of wheat, that would be your food for the day. So what this is saying is a denarius, a day's wage, is spent on a quart of wheat a day's food. This is subsistence living, where all you have to earn is all you have to eat. Or if you had to feed a family, barley was cheaper than wheat, so a day's wage could buy three quarts of barley, which would feed your family. And this is everything that we have going straight just to the cost of eating. Yet, You see at the end, do not harm the oil and wine. There's an abundance of relative luxury. This is scarcity and oversupply existing together. Uh, This is food banks being accessed like never before, while across Australia, across the whole supply chain of food, about 300 kilograms of food per person is wasted every year. The Black Rider is scarcity, and oversupply. And finally, in verse 7, the fourth creature calls forward the fourth pale horse, death. And verse 8 continues that these horses are given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with any evil they might have at hand. Right? The sword, war, famine, pestilence, which means disease or illness, and by wild animals. I think we can agree that these aren't necessarily the best things to be happening to the earth, right? These evils are not for the world's good. Which kind of raises the question, so why are they being called forth by the throne room of God in the first place? Why are they given a plot of the earth to do their own thing? Isn't God supposed to be getting rid of evil, not letting it roam free? This is the the big question that the passage raises. I'm going to go into a little bit of depth. Um, So if you want to explore it with me, ears up, but if you don't, that's all right. I'll tell you when to listen again. Um, Why is God allowing this evil? Well, firstly, I want to make the point that they're not exactly free range. And secondly, this passage makes such a big deal about them because they need to be named. They need to be called out in order that they might be dealt with. So firstly, why these evils aren't free-range? Why, why they don't have the last say? Each horse and its rider being called means that these evils are on a leash. They only come when they're called. They're only released when Jesus unseals the scroll. And they're only seen when they are called. They're on a leash. To add to this point, they're given authority over a court of the earth. Which isn't to say that you might be... Uh, under the oppression of evil more if you live in Victoria than if you live in South Australia. But it's more like the field is fenced off, 
Their movements are restricted. They have set boundaries. They are not free. But if they're not free, then why has God called them in the first place? Why would an all-knowing, all-loving God subject the world to this evil? And this is the big question, right? How can God and evil exist side by side? But the trouble with this question is the Bible doesn't answer it in a way that we can pinpoint and we can say, here's the singular source of evil in the world. This is where it all comes from. So I'm going to use two examples, and using the examples of the riders. Say the red rider, the permission to take away peace. Anger tends to take away peace, doesn't it? If you get angry, peace usually disappears. But there are many people who have things taken from them in their anger. You get angry in a conversation, you might upset someone and lose a friend. You throw a cup across the room in your anger, what happens to that glass cup? You might lose relationships, you might lose property, standing in the community. And that evil you could, you could describe as God handing us over to our passions like Paul does in Romans 3. The evil that occurs is because of us and God hands us over to that evil because that is the best that he can do for us. But what about the black rider? Feast and famine. Surely those people in need haven't necessarily done anything wrong that means that their food is now taken away from them. They're not handed over to their passions. They're they're probably quite passionate about having enough. So there must be some kind of outside force that acts to spread evil in this world. And I think that's what we see with these writers. Here's an outside force. And the Bible uses names for this. the, The Satan, the tempter, the adversary. These are some of the names that the Bible uses. So if there's not just one answer to this question of evil, but we do know that it's restricted, I think a picture begins to emerge where these evils, these writers, are not here to explain their beginning, how they came about, but they're here to explain their exit. Don't you all know that the closer that you get to the end of something, the more likely you're to feel discomfort? Um, The end of a race holding in a toilet trip as the plane begins to land, Uh, saying goodbye to a loved one for who knows how long, perhaps even forever. We feel the discomfort of revelation making evil so plain because it begins to reveal God's judgment. What What I mean by this is judgment in God separating what is of him and what is not. The pain of seeing this evil gets real because we can easily see that this is not of God. And we want to know how it will be dealt with. Revelation is not concerned about how evil enters the world. It's more concerned about how it exits and the reality of its exit. And it begins with the fact that evil is surrounded. So what's past these horses? Well, 
Well, past these horses, the next two seals being opened show us... Oh, sorry, you can tune back in now if you want to. Um, The next two seals being opened show us the difference between those who know that evil is surrounded and those who don't. Which is really encouraging for us this morning, I think, because I said pain and suffering tends to leave us in a fog and it's disorientating and we can't make sense of things. And perhaps you here this morning have gone through something Uh, You come out on the other end of it and you can see the way in which God was guiding you and the way his steady hand was on you. Perhaps you can't. Uh, Perhaps the pain is still disorientating. Uh, Perhaps you haven't been able to make sense of things. And I think that is equally as valid. And this tension of seeing God despite pain and evil is felt by those under the altar in verse 9. Those, as it was the Roman Empire and the Romans were against Christians, those who were killed, who had their blood shed for the witness they gave to the word of God. These are martyrs, and martyrs literally means witness. And their question to God in all of this is not, why me? It's not, how could you? But it's, how long? Their witness in their life and in their death was to the captivity of evil in the hands of God. They cry out because they know that God has evil surrounded. Even the very evil that has taken their lives. They cry out because God will they they cry out because they know that God will judge. He's going to separate what is of him and what is not of him. Here is the hope of a life and a death in Jesus that their blood has been spilt and it's proof that witnessing in the way of Jesus, living as a witness to Jesus, the lamb who was slain, is enough. And the witnesses are given white robes in verse 11. And the image is somehow that the blood of Jesus washes things clean. It just doesn't... we, We can understand it as a spiritual image, but as a practical image, it makes no sense, right? I was thinking, I, I don't have to, cl- I don't have to um, change half the amount of nappies that Lil does. Um, but we're using these um, reusable nappies, and you have to wash them twice, and it's a whole thing. Like, you really have to wash these. And how could blood wash something clean? It doesn't make sense to us. But this is God turning the way that the world works on its head, the way that we expect the world to work. So that the dirt and the stain of blood is to be a Christian's witness to the effectiveness of Jesus' work. To be a witness that evil is surrounded is not just wishful thinking, it's a truth. And we read in the same verse that there are people to come after who will endure and they'll suffer similar things. That's why we wait. Because God's good end goes just beyond me, goes just beyond you, goes beyond all of us. It's comprehensive. This morning, maybe we're not all under the threat of death, but to put blood, sweat, and tears down as a witness to the work of Jesus is joining in with these people. So I've got a screen here. These people under the altar who are crying out how long? Joining in with their hope that God will judge and he will avenge. And it's joining in with their longing for evil to be done for and a new life in Jesus to be found. 
So these are the people who know that evil is surrounded. Yet on the other hand, there are the events of 12 to 15, which seem to affect everyone else. I'm going to read it and explain it quickly, because I think it's pretty gnarly. When he opened the sixth seal, this is the lamb, this is Jesus, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed for its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and amongst the rocks of the mountains. And what's their response? It's not like those in verse 10 who cry out, how long? But instead, to the mountains, fall on us, to the rocks, hide us. And to anyone who would listen, who can stand against the one on the throne? God. There's a, there's a fear in this passage and there's a fear in them because everything seems unsure. Actually, scrap seems. Everything is unsure. Everything that isn't God is revealed as temporary. Everything falls away. Everything disappears. And for us, we're all temporary people. That includes us as well. I'm aware of the irony that a 27-year-old is up in front of you saying, we're all temporary. But not just us, our, our words and our works, our thoughts and our actions. Who can stand when everything one day is going to pass away? This evil seems unescapable. And for those who are scared when everything falls away, it is. They would rather be hidden under the mountains than face God's judgment. They would rather be hidden under the mountains than be on the end where God decides what is of him and what is not of him. In the face of being under God's judgment, what's there left to do? Well, just as John hears a song in heaven worshipping God and Jesus in chapter 4 and 5, we hear a song in the middle of evil in chapter 7. And this is a song of freedom. This is a good news song, one that surrounds these evils. This is a song past the horses. And I want to encourage us this morning that it can be our response too, to sing past the horses. Sing past the horses. And... I'm going to choose to leave out the first part of chapter 7, uh, along with all of its 144,000 problems. Um, I do think it has significance. I'm not denying that it's a part of the chapter, uh, but I just, in my reading, I don't think it's the main thing. Uh, but if you have any questions about it, I'd be happy to chat through it, uh, because I did a lot of reading around it as well. But from verse 9, we, we look and we see a great multitude that I couldn't count, you can't count, that John can't count. People from every tribe. People who happen to be Port fans, Crows fans, St Kilda fans. People who are unreached from the south of India. Unreached as of yet. People who speak English. People who can't speak English. And they're all standing before the throne in a very similar way that John witnessed to in chapters 4 and 5, and they're worshipping God. 
They're acknowledging something lays beyond these horses. They're worshipping him and they're acknowledging with their mouths that in verse 10 that salvation belongs to our God, to the Lamb who is slain. Salvation belongs to Jesus. If we think about those who can't stand, we ourselves are not able to understand we ourselves are not able to stand, but here is one who has carried us, blood, sweat, and tears, put into supporting us where we once fell. So this is a song that guarantees evil's end. This is a song that surrounds evil. Think about the first three songs that we've heard so far. Chapter four was in response to seeing God. Chapter five about the victory of Jesus Christ. And chapter seven is in response to seeing evil. It seems a bit strange, but Revelation's claim that evil is surrounded can only be taken seriously if we take these songs seriously. That salvation, that cleanliness for those under the altar, for security and healing, they all belong to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. That it's not ours to achieve, but it's heaven's to give. That's why we hear it from heaven. And we receive it here as a song. So what does it look like to sing past the horses then? I said that can be our response. What does it look like to sing past the horses? Because, as I said before, pain and evil tends to send a fog. We get out of sorts. We get disorientated. But to sing past the horses means to find hope in what lies beyond our current experience. It means to respond with the hope of those under the altar of how long rather than those under the mountain who can stand. So what does singing past the horses look like? It looks like believing and seeing clearly what lies beyond the evil and pain in the world. So what would it look like if we took the four uh, riders? If we took the four riders what would it look like to see these riders in perspective? What would it look like to sing past these riders? What about the triumphalist white horse, the best is yet to come horse? Instead of triumphalism, are we called to maturity? Instead of sharing Bible band-aids, are we called to be with one another in relationship and in community, seeking the good of others by submitting ourselves to God? And practically is that Is that getting into community somehow? Maybe if you're able to, joining a Bible study, um, catching up with people. Is that making time to share in reading the Bible and prayer with your household? Triumphalism to maturity. What about the warring red horse? Taking peace wherever it goes. Are we called to offer peace instead? Especially, I think, in places where peace tends to get snatched up. Are we called to deepen our own peace with God? Spending time in his quiet, switching screens off that add anxiety and tension in the house where they do. What about the unjust black horse fueling scarcity through inequality? Instead of scarcity, are we called to live lives of supply? Knowing what we need and on the other hand, knowing what we don't need sharing what we have with others 
And especially to help that, being wary of our defensiveness around our own possessions, wherever that might come up. Perhaps even willing to take risks to see others in need with their own supply. What about the fatal pale horse bringing death? Are we called to live? Maybe you're living amongst death at the moment. But are we called also to live in Jesus, who lived among us to die and to be raised again? And are we called to live through his death? Are we called to live this morning? Because I think, I don't know, it could be very easy not to live. It could be easy to say, sing at the horses, to, to not see what lays beyond, to be pessimistic, to say, I'll just grin and bear it, not much longer now. Or even more dangerously, I think we could be tempted to sing with the horses instead of past the horses. We, could, we can turn the way that the horses are facing and, say, and be cynics and to say, uh, this, is, this is just as good as it's going to get, right? What's mine is mine. I'll be angry. I'll take peace if I want to. Death is the end, and I'll approach God on my own terms. Thank you very much. This is the danger of evil and pain's fog. It can shorten our vision. But to see past the horses and to sing past the horses is to be a witness of the way of Jesus in the midst of pain and evil. We have assurance that the evil of this world has limits. They don't roam free, despite the chaos and despite the confusion that they bring. We're going to respond in a song. Um, we're going to sing Living Hope. I think it's a, John chose it, I think it's a great song. Um, and it's a way of us to sing past the horses and to sing to our living hope, Jesus. So as I pray a very quick, short prayer, John, um, I'll invite him down, and we can respond in song. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and God, We ask you, would you let the fog lift? Would you let us hear the song of heaven? Would you let us hear that evil has an end? And Lord, by your spirit, would you let us join in singing past the horses? Amen.